Good morning. It's a great privilege again to be able to share the Word of God with you. And thank you for the opportunity to do that. Just to say, the guys who are coming with me this evening, uh, Kieran was brought up in the Divis Flats and invited to leave school in P6, never to return. His life got caught up into a horrible enslavement. Today, he's absolutely free, and for a number of, uh, probably nearly a year now, he's been working for us um, and helping us in Teen Challenge, and you'll be blessed by his story. And Holly, she's coming all the way from Cherry Hill. Uh, her dad lives there, and she's younger than Kieran, but again has a story of a life that got caught up completely in enslavement to addiction. So if you do know people who struggle in that area of their lives and don't have hope, invite them to come so that they can hear the stories of people who have broken free. I'm sure it will be an encouragement to them. I want to read some verses from John, the Gospel of John chapter 4. And I'm going to start reading at verse 34, but you know the account is the one where Jesus is traveling through Samaria, stops at a well while the disciples go into town to buy lunch, and he meets a lady there. They have a conversation. She's gone home to invite the town out to meet this remarkable man who's told her everything she's ever done. And the disciples have returned. And in verse 34, Jesus says to the disciples, My food, said Jesus, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Do you not say, four months more, and then the harvest? I tell you, lift up your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. Even now the reaper draws his wages. Even now he harvests the crop for eternal life so that the sower and the reaper may be glad together. Thus the saying, one sows and another reaps, is true. I sent you to reap what you have not worked for. Others have done the hard work, and you have reaped the benefits of their labor. It's apparently an ordinary situation and circumstance. The disciples have gone. They've got lunch. They've brought it back and they want to encourage Jesus to eat. And Jesus wants to teach them a lesson. And critical to that lesson, he says, lift up your eyes and look at the fields. 
He's suggesting that there's something wrong with their perspective. That the way they see things is affecting their judgment. And he wants to change their perspective. So he asks them to fix their focus in a different place. He's about to enlarge their thinking in a way they had not anticipated. And if I can ask you just to hold that for a moment, I want to pick up that theme. You see, throughout the scripture, there are occasions in which God speaks to his people to say, lift up your eyes. Because God wants to enlarge our thinking. He wants to fix our focus in a different place. Do you remember the occasion? It's recorded in Genesis 15. Where God turns up in a vision in the tent of Abraham. And this is what he says. Abraham, I am your shield and your very great reward. Now this appears to be an incredible moment, doesn't it? God turns up in the tent and he has a word and the word is, I am your shield. I am your defender and I am a very great reward to you. Now apparently that ought to be a moment of amazing blessing. But Abraham has a wrong perspective of God in that moment. And this is what Abraham says. What can you give to me? Since I have no son of my own. And a servant in my household, Eliezer of Damascus... He is going to inherit everything I've got. I mean, if I can. Essentially, Abraham says, it's all very well you turning up here and telling me you're my shield and a very great reward. But the thing that I want more than anything else, you haven't given me. You are a disappointment to me. And that's a strong thing to say, isn't it? When you've got a perspective of God, that God has been a disappointment. Abraham had had a promise. God had said he was going to make him the father of many nations. And Abraham remains childless. So when God comes to him in that moment, Abraham is honest about the sense of disappointment. Abraham says, God, this is how I see it. It's all very well you saying some nice words to me about who you are. But actually, the thing I want more than anything else, I'm robbed of. What you promised me, I don't have. And now, a servant will inherit everything that's mine. And God says to Abraham, come outside. And in verse 5 of Genesis chapter 15... God says to Abraham, look up at the stars. Count them if you are able to. And in that moment, he is challenging Abraham to change his perspective. 
Abraham is looking at the impossibility of his circumstance. He's looking at the immediacy of a situation that has been a challenge and a trial to him. And God's saying, come outside. See those? I did that. They're the work of my hands. Those celestial orbs hang there at the power of my word. Can you count them? Count them if you can, because one day your descendants will be more than the stars in the sky. I want you to see this differently, Abraham. I want you to change your focus. There are times in our lives where we need God to ask us to change our perspective on him. We need God to challenge our perspective on him because we have a God sometimes that we have made too small. We have a God that we have made with significant limitations. We've put boxes around God and limits that he is not contained by, yet we're seeing him in a way that he's not worthy of. And sometimes God needs to come and to challenge that thinking. Sometimes God needs to come and to challenge our perspective of the circumstances. You know, when Abraham set out on the journey, he and Lot went together. And the two families come alongside and they are blessed incredibly by God to a point where it is no longer possible for the land to sustain both families and their flocks and herds. And in Genesis chapter 13, Abraham says to Lot, Look, our herdsmen are falling out with one another. There's tension between them, but we don't want there to be tension between us. We're of the same family. So look, let's go in a different direction here. If you choose to go to the left hand, I'll go to the right And if you choose to go to the right, I'll go to the left so that we're not on top of one another. And Lot looks and he sees the fertile plains by the Jordan and he makes a choice about the direction that he goes in. And Lot moves on so that there's no tension and that the land's able to sustain both parties. How do you think Abraham feels in that moment? Because God has said to him, he's going to give him a land that's going to sustain a nation. But in the land, it doesn't appear to be able to sustain two families living side by side. And the circumstances are a challenge to the promise of God's word. And Abraham's taken this action, but suddenly there's a question, is the land big enough? Is God able to do what he has promised to do? What does God do? In Genesis 13 and verse 14, he says to Abraham, immediately after Lot walks off, lift up your eyes. And I want you to look to the north, and then I want you to look to the south, I want you to look to the west and to the east, as far as your eyes can see, I'm giving it all to you. 
at a moment when they'd seemed to have compromise to sustain two families. And Abraham has given choice to Lot. God immediately steps in to say to Abraham, I don't want this to make your perspective too small. He said, Abraham said to Lot, you go to the left, I'll go to the right. God says to Abraham, in front of you, behind you, left of you, and right of you, I'm giving it all to you. There are times God needs to challenge our perspective of the circumstances that we're in. Because it seems the circumstances contain us. It seems in that sense, the provision, the land, whatever it may be, is too small for us. And in those moments, we feel significantly challenged. And God wants to change our perspective. Sometimes God wants to challenge our perspective of our enemies. So in 2 Kings chapter 6, there's a story of Elisha who is constantly frustrating the king of Aram or the king of Syria as he, we would know it better, who had been hunting him down, but every time he arrived where he expected Elisha to be, Elisha had moved on. But in 2 Kings chapter 6, eventually the king with a great army finds Elisha and surrounds the tent. Elisha and his servant, two men. And there's a great army it seems a little overkill. And when the servant steps out first thing in the morning, he is utterly terrified. He says, oh my Lord, what shall we do? And Elisha understands something that his servant doesn't. Elisha understands he is not overwhelmed by the enemy. He says this to the servant in verse 15. He says, those who are with us are more than those who are with them. But the servant doesn't see it. So Elisha says... Lord, open his eyes so that he can see. And in that moment, the servant sees in the hills all around them, horses and chariots of fire. There's an army that surrounds a tent that's opposed to them. But suddenly... The servant recognizes that army is as nothing compared with the armies of God that are on their side that are fighting for them. Phil has reminded us already that because of what Christ has done for us, God is completely committed to protecting us, to watching over us. But sometimes we get caught up and our focus is so much on the enemy, on the size of the enemy, that we become overwhelmed. And it affects our state of mind and our thinking. And God needs to come and to challenge us about the size of our enemy. 
People talk an awful lot about the number of atheists that there are in the world. And the voice of these militant atheists that rises up against the church and against the people of God. One in 50 people on the face of the earth is an atheist. Let me say that statistic to you in a different way. 98 people out of every 100 people on the face of the earth believe there is a God in heaven. But we get caught up with the enemy and we fix our focus in a given way. There's a survey that's just been released by the Daily Telegraph. I think it's in yesterday's paper. It says one in five teenagers in the UK claim to have a real relationship with Jesus Christ. That's good, isn't it? But we don't get caught up with those things. We fix our times, our focus on the enemy and the activity of the enemy and what the enemy is doing. And the Word of God makes it clear those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Are not all angels ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation? Hebrews 1.14 says... Has God given his angels charge concerning you to watch over you? Yes, he has. But there are times in our life he needs to challenge our perspective to invite us to focus differently. There are times when God needs to challenge our perspective of ourselves. In Revelation chapter 3, Jesus speaks to the church in Laodicea and he challenges them about how they see themselves. He says, you say you are rich and increased with wealth in every way and you need nothing. That's your estimation of yourself. We're doing great. We don't need anything. We're prospering in every area of our lives. He says, I say to you, you are poor, wretched, pitiful, blind, and naked. I think it's verse 7 of Revelation chapter 3. He says, I counsel you, buy from me, I salve to put on your eyes. So you can see how you really are. There are times in our lives we get an inflated opinion of ourselves. We feel a little superior to that which we really should. And God needs to challenge our perspective of ourselves. There are times when we don't think enough of ourselves. In Numbers 13, it tells the story of the children of Israel at Kadesh Barnea when 12 spies are chosen to go into the land. It says all of them were leaders in Israel. And those 
Spies went out. And ten of them came back and they said to everybody else, verse 33 of Numbers 13, we were like grasshoppers in our own eyes. And so we must have seemed to them. Their perspective meant they were beaten before they started. They were overcome by an inaccurate sense of who they were. Their perspective made the world of difference. And on that particular occasion, and I'm going to come back to it in a few moments, that Jesus is with his disciples by the well at Sychar. He says to them, guys, you need to lift up your eyes. And I'm saying this this morning because some of you need to lift up your eyes. You need to change your perspective. Perhaps on God. Perhaps on the circumstances that you're in. Perhaps on the enemies that you feel oppose you. Or perhaps on yourself. You see, the one thing that's crystal clear from the scripture is that how you fix your focus, how you set your perspective determines your state of mind. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, as he draws to a close, Paul says, Therefore, we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are perishing, inwardly we are being renewed day by day. So our light and momentary afflictions are working for us an eternal weight of glory that far outweighs them all. So, we fix our eyes, not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. Because what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. He's explaining something that is absolutely fundamental to Christianity that is able to reign in life. We do not fix our eyes on what we see. We do not measure what is happening by the immediacy of our circumstances. We do not measure what is happening by what the enemy is doing. We measure what is happening by the declared, revealed will of God. By what His purpose has been declared to be, we're fixing our eyes on something else. So when Paul says, we do not lose heart, it's not because he's not going through it. He's described in detail some of the challenges and the pressures that he's under and the stuff that he feels. But in spite of the challenges and about, in spite of the stuff that he's under, 
He says, our light and momentary afflictions, they're working for us an eternal weight of glory. God is doing something in the unseen that one day will be revealed to us in the midst of this. So we fix our eyes. He understood that's how you control your state of mind. We do not lose heart. It's expressed by the writer to the Hebrews, perhaps more directly. In Hebrews 12 and in verse 1, we're told that we should throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles us since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses. Let us run with perseverance the race that is marked out for us. Looking to Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross and sat down at the right hand of God. We fix our eyes on Jesus or looking unto Jesus, depending which version you're reading from. And verse 3 says, Consider Him who endured such opposition from sinful men so that you do not grow weary and do not lose heart. That's staggering. Apparently, fixing your eyes on Jesus and considering Him stops you from becoming physically tired. How is that possible? And it stops you from becoming emotionally downtrodden. That is what it says, isn't it? Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men so that you do not grow weary. You do not become physically tired in this Christian walk. There's a remedy for tiredness in the Christian life. It's about where you see your perspective is fixed. It's about where your focus is fixed. We fix our eyes on Jesus who started this in us and who's going to finish this. He's the author and the finisher of our faith. Consider him so that you do not become weary and so that you don't lose heart. Losing heart is about becoming emotionally downtrodden so we've no longer got the emotional energy to keep going. We're discouraged. We're down. The writer to the Hebrew says, no, we fix our eyes on Jesus. We understand 
There are challenges, but we fix our eyes on him. And I'm saying where you fix your focus determines your state of mind. And throughout the scripture, and I've given you some examples this morning, God challenges his people. Open your eyes. Lift up your eyes. See it as it really is. So let me come back to John chapter 4 as I close. You guys say four months and then the harvest. They were culturally conditioned and they knew how things happened in their area. They knew when a harvest would come. And it's not for four months yet. Jesus says there's a harvest that's ripe and ready now and you're missing it because your perspective is in the wrong place. You're looking at the wrong thing. But when Jesus was talking about the harvest to the disciples, he's not talking about going into the wheat fields, going into the barley fields and threshing grain. He's talking about men and women who are ready to receive the kingdom of God. He's talking about the broken who are hurting and waiting for somebody to introduce them to Jesus. And often the church wants to put that off to another time. And he says, guys, I want you to open your eyes because you want to put it off for four months. I'm telling you there's a ripe harvest ready for you now. That's the truth of the Word of God. When Jesus speaks to the harvest, here's His Word. There's a ripe harvest that's ready now. There are broken people all around you who are waiting for somebody to point the way. Tonight, you'll listen to two broken people from this city who will talk to you about the fact they were waiting for somebody to point them the way. Every day... As you go about your ordinary business, there are broken people waiting for you to point them the way. There's a ripe harvest and it's ready now. And Jesus says, can I just tell you, you get paid for it. Even now, the reaper draws his wages and gathers fruit for eternal life. Getting paid for the harvest is not in souls. It's not in scalps for the kingdom. You will gather fruit for eternal life, but God is going to pay you for the harvest that you bring. Not something that we talk about often. And then he says, So the sower and the reaper rejoice together. Actually, the work the church is called to is meant to be a work of incredible joy. Isn't it interesting that Jesus' perspective on the harvest is quite different sometimes from the churches. It's really hard. It's very difficult. Nobody wants to know. Jesus says, actually, guys, there's a ripe harvest that's ready now. You're getting paid for it. And this should bring joy into your life. This should be a blessing and not a burden. And then he says the most staggering thing of all. He says, you've got the easy job. 
I sent you to reap where you hadn't sown and to gather where you hadn't scattered. Others have done the hard work. (laughs) And now you're joining in their labors. That's Jesus' perspective on the harvest. You've got the easy job. The disciples were about to get an illustration of that because there was a city on their way out to meet them. And the disciples had done nothing to engender interest in this city. The disciples had done nothing, but lots of people in that city were about to believe in Jesus. They were going to go into the city with the people who were coming out and spend two days there, and loads of people were going to believe, and the disciples would have the joy of bringing in that harvest, and they'd done nothing to work for it. It was an illustration of something. You see, through the purpose, through the redemptive purpose of God in the ages, he has been preparing for this moment in history. So he gave the law. The teachers of the law went through the hard work of trying to school people in a way that would lead them to Christ. And prophets called upon people while they watched them, ignore them, rebel against God, turn their backs against them. They looked forward to Christ's day and longed for it. Others have done the hard work. Through the ages, people have laid down their lives so that today, in 2017, we have the freedom and the joy of going and gathering where we didn't scatter and harvesting where we didn't reap from. And sometimes we need to lift up our eyes to be looking at the harvest and not looking at ourselves. Sometimes we need to be asking God to change our perspective because it seems to me throughout the Scripture, God was challenging His people to lift up their eyes. I pray, God, you will. Amen.